0: Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab. My name's Goose. My name's Gabby. And
1: what are we talking about today, Gabby? We talked about a bubble. We talked about big old hypothetical bubble.
0: (laughs) Well, we talked, yeah, we talked about the Tony bubble, we talked about the property bubble. We talked about all kinds of stuff. But in this episode, we tackle really a big burning question that's in a lot of property investors' minds. Are we in a housing bubble? What does that mean? And, and so in this episode, we kind of really dig into 10 key points that really address that. Uh, and, and I'd be really interested to know what people think around these 10 points. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So if you're interested in knowing, are we in a housing bubble? And if we are, what to do about it and what our advice would be in that kind of situation, then I suggest that you get stuck into this episode. There's some really interesting stuff going on here. We talk about facts, figures, ideas, uh, philosophies. We look at some macro global stuff and some local stuff as well to try and paint a really clear picture for you, the successful investor <laughs> and how you can continue to succeed in the long run. So did I miss anything, Gabby? Anything you want to add? Spice
1: the episode, guys. Get excited.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. All right. Get into the spice and don't burn yourself. (laughs) And make sure that you like, rate, review, share, give this to a friend, family member, or loved one, and give us feedback as well. We love the feedback. And without any further ado, see you on the inside. Hey, guys. Welcome back to the Investor Lab. Gabby, how are you today?
1: Effervescent. Oh, I stole your word. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
0: effervescent. The sun's well, why, why are you effervescent?
1: Because it's bloody hot. It's starting to get hot again, and I like the heat.
0: Indeed, indeed. Is it also because you went to Tony Robbins?
1: I did go to Tony Robbins.
0: you still got some uh, residual jacked.
1: Tony Tony Glow, Tony Glow, (laughs) Tony Glow. And how was it? It was awesome. It was awesome, guys. If you ever get the chance to do any of his events, if anybody doesn't know who Tony Robbins is, stop listening to this podcast.
0: No, don't stop (laughs) listening to the podcast. Just after you've listened to the podcast, Um, go and do something else. Sure.
1: (laughs) Tony Um,
0: Robbins
1: is. People these days seem to know him from that um, Netflix documentary, I'm Not Your Guru. So I think he got a lot of... Is that how most people
0: know him? Apparently, yeah. Yep. Really?
1: Yeah. So, but he's been around for freaking 40 years or something. He's like the personal development guy. Uh, And, yeah, so we did a virtual event four days, full, like, Sixteen-hour days, four days over the weekend. It was, was sixteen-hour days. Yep, yep. It was a lot. <laughs> wow, that's a lot intense. Lot of jumping, a lot of dancing. Feel really, you feel really good after it because you get so much blood going through, and then you work through all your limiting beliefs and stuff. So, come out of it, feel like a warrior. So. <laughs> Some residual Tony hanging, hanging around around.
0: <laughs> do you feel like do you feel like when you're in that um when you're in that zone that you get um that you get pumped up, that you get inflated, like maybe you get into a bit of an energetic bubble?
1: I thought that, but it's been I've been putting in practices this week to like keep it keep it hanging around. So I'm sure that if I came back and I went, that was a fun weekend, but like I'm, I'm out. It would have just disappeared straight away. Mm. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Well, that's probably a good segue into what we're going to be talking about today, because a lot of people, a lot of people <laughs> have been wondering whether or not the housing market is in a bubble, or whether they've got some residual Tony. That they can carry through multiple cycles. <laughs> and it-
1: I, totally, I totally missed that. I did not know where you were going. <laughs> bubble, <laughs> bubble. Totally, weak.
0: yeah, yeah. So weak. So obviously if you go to you go see Tony Robbins, you get all jacked up and then you go home and then poof, collapse back to your normal self, then you oh, probably have good. Now you'd probably have a bit of a you'd have a bit of a, a tony bubble. But people are worried about a housing bubble, you know, particularly with particularly with property prices are rising. So that's a good segue. I think that's one of my better it. ones.
1: I love it. So good. All right. Let's, okay,
0: awesome. let's go. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So yeah, so there's a lot of people starting to wonder now. It's really interesting, right? So there's this funny mindset with property investors. I would say people in general, actually, but we we'll, we'll use yep. we we'll use we we'll use, we'll use property investors. Um, when things aren't going good they say, oh my God, the world's going to end. Look, everything's going bad. Therefore, I won't take any action. Mm-hmm. And then when things are going good, they go, oh my God, things are going good. That must mean they're about to go bad. I'm not going to take any action. <laughs> right? So this is it's kind of like, this is really funny uh, and interesting mindset that goes on. But a lot of people at the moment seem to be wondering, okay, are uh, house prices are going up really, really quickly. Is it sustainable? Are we in a housing bubble? You know, is it going to crash? Are we? Is it all going to pop? Uh, you know, uh, is the housing market going to completely collapse? You know, all of this kind of stuff. And that seems, it's an interesting, um, I would say it's not an unreasonable question to ask. I think it's a fair question to ask. Um, but it's just, it is quite interesting, I think, that um, when things are going good, people naturally assume they're about to go bad. Um
1: for well, sure. And I think this comes about, right, from um, particularly this day and age, everyone's so attached to the news because of everything mm. going on with COVID. Everyone wants the updates. So they're just fixated on news happening, what's moving day to day. And I think the media love negativity, right? They love, even as you said, like when it's going good, they'll try and find the things that's going to like mm. the risks and why it's not actually all that rosy. Um, yep. and like people just people that becomes the source of truth for so many people and so they start to think about it they read that digest it and then you have a conversation with someone that you just walk past in the street or someone you know mm. and you're like oh how about that housing bubble they're like I know and that kind of affirms yeah your own belief and it doesn't really you know go much further than that for most people in terms of their own research and critical thinking about it so yeah
0: yeah, I also think that there's another really big factor at play and I think it's about perception mm-hmm. and perspective um, because when things are new and you've pushed a boundary in something, it's natural to assume that that can't be the new normal. Mm-hmm. You know, you've kind of got, you got the Roger Bannister analogy that nobody thought you could run a four-minute mile until Roger Bannister run the ran the four-minute mile and then however many, like, Thousands of people have broken it since, but nobody could do it beforehand because they didn't believe it to be possible. And the same kind of thing goes with house prices as well. Like I, I, to put it in a different context, I remember when I was growing up and I was a kid um, and I remember fuel prices. And I remember my parents saying that when petrol prices got to like 70 cents, maybe it was 80 cents. They were going to sell the car and get a horse and cart. You know, they were just like, "It's just <laughs> madness." Petrol prices can't go that high, you know. And now we pay like a dollar fifty or whatever it is uh, yeah. for the for the same thing.
1: I remember thinking that when it got to a dollar, because I was like, when it started just like creeping over a dollar and you're like, oh, it's cracked the dollar. And then (laughs) it gradually just sat more and more above the dollar. And now it's like you would never get below a dollar.
0: No, totally. Yeah, Imagine (laughs) that. Imagine if you found petrol for less than a dollar these days. You'd be like, you'd be be drinking it just to try and retain some, you know, like, (laughs) yeah. um, So it's really interesting, right? Because I think that people, whenever anyone views anything, they can only view it from within the prism of their own existence, Mm -hmm. right? So... Just in the same way that humans can't can can't conceive infinity, it's also very hard to conceive long distances or large prices or big changes. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the day, the only reason the Himalayas exist is because two tectonic plates are pushing up against each other and shoving large masses of dirt and stone, you know, kilometres and kilometres into the sky. But of course, we look at it, we just see a static mountain, right? we, just, we see something that isn't even moving. Um, so... I'm trying to see things from a quantum of time really, really helped to understand things a little bit better. And it's funny that you said that Tony Robbins has been around for about 40 years. And if we go back, um, if we go back 40 years to, you know, to 1980, the national median house price in Australia was 76, around about $76,500. Right. So it's like, Idiot. okay. Yeah. That was the national median house cool. price.
1: Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. So and that was about 40 years ago. Now, if, 40 years ago, if you had said to somebody that the national median house price was going to be $955,927, they probably would have thought you were bonkers. You know, They would have said, it's ne- ne- it'll never happen. It absolutely will never happen. But in fact, that's what the med- national median house price is today, $955,927. And I think it's very, but it's very hard when you're in it and you're seeing those those boundaries being pushed. And you can tip, you see where you've been and you go, I remember when houses were 500 grand and, oh my God, they're like a million dollars now. This can't be sustainable. And it's natural to kind of freak out a little bit because anytime we push boundaries, whether it be within ourselves, within our emotions, within our mindset, within, you know, economically, spiritually, physically, scientifically, um, we're always setting a new normal. Um, and that always requires that we get a little bit outside of our comfort zone, right? Every, everything that is new is on the other side of your comfort zone, uh, and that can be really that can be a really hard perspective to maintain. You know, like every time every time the share market or whatever reaches a new record, you know, which I think in Australia it's done it like twenty times this year, it set a new record or something like that, right? It's like, oh my god, it can't keep going up, but in fact. In fact, oh. the evidence suggests that it can. In fact, that's the whole that's the whole Keynesian economic theory with, with, within which we operate. Um, so the interesting thing, right, is that over the last forty years, was well, from nineteen eighty to twenty twenty one, which is technically forty one years, but for the simplicity, we say forty <laughs> years, right? Um, the median house price has changed from national median house price has changed from seventy six thousand five hundred dollars to nine hundred fifty five thousand nine hundred twenty seven dollars. That is a 12.5X, right? <laughs> yeah. So do the math on that. $955,927 divided by 76,500 gives you 12.4957, right? That's how many times the, the pro- property price has grown, right? Um, to put that in another context, that's a growth of 1,249%. Over the last 30 years, which, if you take a straight line equation, is an average of 31% year, 31% growth a year for the, for the last 40 years. And everyone, everyone yeah. he- hears me say that 30, 31% a year. Everyone's going, ah, oh, property prices don't grow that much, but they do when they compound, right? So you can have a, na- you can have a national, you can have a compound, um, a CAGA, so a compound annual growth rate of say six percent. But the compound nature of it means you're doing six on six on six on six on six on six on six. On six, on six. And so and then that gives you your your you know the total quantum. And then if you divide the two the, the two points in time in a linear fashion, you'll get a, You get a different equation. Um, so ultimately, though, the the value of properties has risen by 31 percent a year on That's average awesome. for the last forty years, which is just bonkers, right? Um, and people fail to remember that, but the simple thing is if you just go back to 1990, like most people can remember 1990 or the 90s, and if you could go back to the 90s, how many properties would you buy? Well, you'd buy all of them, right? You'd, yeah. you'd find anyone who had a dollar, and you'd be like, you'd be doing a deal to try and get it to go buy more houses. Uh, the other thing to consider is that if we fast forward another 40 years, if we use that same growth rate that we've had for the last 40 years, and this isn't factoring in a whole bunch of stuff which we're going to talk about in a minute, uh if we just use the same growth rate so another 12.5 times in 2060 the national median house price in australia would be 11 949 mm. we we we're only at around about a million now so for most people to think what the national the national average house price the median house price in australia would be nearly 12 million dollars 11.9 million dollars it's just like what and there's probably everyone. There's probably heaps of people out there saying that'll never happen. That'll never happen. We'll never make it there. Just like they would have been saying back in 1980. Um, so it's really hard to for people to get their brains around that. What do you think about What do you think about the things that I've just said? Yeah,
1: I was just thinking about. You can imagine back in 1980 that people then would have been like, "We're in a bubble. Like, yeah, prices can't go up anymore. It's not possible because yeah. of the whole scheme of the economy yeah. at the time." Um, and it's the same that kind of like history repeats itself, right? It's like these kind of conversations come up because most people, as you said, like can't see beyond their own perspective and want that majority understanding. But there's like that, there's a quote of, um, when you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. Hmm. And it's like, these are the times when the majority want to seek comfort and want to seek certainty, But it's actually the ones who step above and grow beyond the majority that end up doing really well in these kind of markets because they actually take it upon themselves to realise what is actually happening and not just listening to what everyone else is saying and getting caught in that. And it's those people that step forward. And, you know, like everyone listening to this podcast, like you're all here, you're all high achievers, so you all want to like do better than everyone else. So like these are kind of the times when you hear the majority saying one thing and if it actually doesn't sound completely true, you need to think about like what is actually the fact and move forward with that.
0: Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. And I think that's probably the hardest, that's probably the hardest thing, right? Is how do you how do you how do you sift truth from the noise? Or how do you make objective decisions? Like why like how do you how do you question what you're hearing or seeing in the media and how do you question all the other stuff and how do you give it perspective? For me, I always just like to try and go and find some supporting evidence. So I always like to approach it from a fir- first principles basis and go, okay, well, is this true? How would I know that it's true? And what would that mean if it was true? And you know, all of these, all of these kind of things. And I think there's, there's like everything that we've just kind of said about, um, about you know, if if house prices continue to grow just at the rate they have been growing, we'd end up at about you know, we'll call it eleven point nine million, but we'll call it twelve million dollars um, national median house price by twenty sixty. That seems bananas, but I actually think there's a really significant chance that it's going to be higher, like a lot higher, like really a lot higher.
1: Why do you think that?
0: Well, um, I've distilled about um, 10 different reasons, right? Uh, (laughs) That's
1: what I prepared earlier.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, I've distilled about 10 different reasons. We're at a really interesting um, transition point with residential real estate. Um, And I'm going to get to, there's a lot of institutional investment coming into the space, which I'm going to get to towards the end but i think it's worth building a bit of a a picture right yeah um
1: that's actually really interesting just the whole like we actually are in a transition point mm. for residential so it's hard for people to not just overlay their preconceived ideas and like this has happened in the past this is what is predicted in the future it's like this is actually quite an interesting turning
0: point yeah
1: it is a little bit different yeah
0: yeah Yeah. totally because if you if you go back um if you go back 20 30 years we didn't have as much of a housing supply shortage as we do now so there was a lot of other different in, uh, economic conditions which didn't uh, necessarily drive as much uh, property price growth you know there was changing there was changes in economic situations as in um, you know the the medium wage went up and disposable income went up and that allowed for a whole bunch of different other stuff and we moved from kind of a more um egalitarian industrialized economy to a more consumer-based financial one. right all of this kind of stuff but that there, there's a there's a bunch of stuff that's going on at the moment namely the population is growing so um it's currently about 7.9 billion and in about 50 years it's going to be about 9.7 billion and the debate like very simple maths here is that there isn't we're not creating any more land it's not like the so the density is increasing globally and also people are moving to countries where there's greater greater levels of economic prosperity but this is a global this has got a global impact you know there's there's no more land being created which means that the density is increasing and uh, the UN estimates that urban populations are going to double in the next 50 years so there's also a there's also um, we're condensing towards um, to, towards the hubs and to the, towards the centres And the reason for that is because As the population increases We also need to be able to produce more Food and resources To keep everyone satisfied Which means that we can't continue to spread out right? If we continue to spread out We won't have any land left To be able to produce what we need to survive So what that means is We've got this kind of um, this, this two this two, dual impact of population increasing. It means that we need more space but um, to live, but we also need more space to be able to harvest the resources we need to exist on the planet. And so the impact take- of that yeah, it's super interesting, right? So yeah. what that means is that the places that we have are going to become more densely populated. There's going to be more demand for those areas because people still got to, people still still people need somewhere to live. So it's not just a case of producing more houses and spreading out further. Um, it's also going to uh, concentrate... Uh, it's also going to concentrate where people live and thus drive up the house. All you need to do is look at Hong Kong for, what, for an example of what happens when you have a, highly, a, highly, uh, a high density uh, residential population with no expansion. A lot of people who want to live there. The property prices there are just astronomical, um, particularly compared to the, um, to the wages.
1: Yeah, just on that, that's actually, that is that is an interesting thing to take away from this in terms mm. of like the reasons for increasing density. And it's mm. not just about like just trying to cram people around cities, but it's like doing that because we need to preserve the natural harvestable lands that we have yeah. that there is no more of. So it's not even just about like, you know, you hear that they're not making any more land from a... When You buy a property, you want the most amount of land, you want that kind of thing. But it's also just literally like there is no more Australia that they're yeah. going to, or anywhere in the world, there's no more Australia land that's going to be built. And we need that to be maximized with our yeah. human habitation to be able to feed everyone and, and yeah, everyone that in that density. So, yeah, that's yeah. really interesting.
0: Yeah, totally. And so, Couple that with the fact that there is actually currently a global housing supply shortage, right? So there aren't enough, to put it in really simple terms, there aren't enough houses in the world to house all the people in the world right now. We're really, really short. And in Australia, that deficit's about 450000 And because we can't just continue to expand our towns and cities endlessly, building approval rates are really, really low. So they're not opening up more land to build more houses. Um, and, you know, we're still in a transition phase with, within government uh, approvals to be able to increase densities and all of that kind of stuff because the infrastructure hasn't necessarily kept up with the ability for that level of density to be centred in one place. Look at Melbourne, for, an exam- for example. The infrastructure hasn't been able to keep up with Melbourne's growth and it, and it has a lot of problems in terms of transport and stuff like that. So you've kind of got these problems where the where the government is saying, "Well, geez, we can't cram any more people in there because we can't we don't have the infrastructure to deal with that, but we also can't push them out that way because we won't have any land or any national parks or anything like that to 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 be able to service the the environment. So, that creates a natural impasse where you have increasing demand and not and, and supply is not increasing at the same rate. It is increasing, but it's not increasing at the same rate, which is creating a dearth between the two. We're getting, the, the gap is widening right, mm-hmm. between, those, between those two points, which is really, really interesting. Um, then there's another factor as well, which plays into it as well, and uh, I affectionately call it the loner effect. So what used to happen with families and cultures is that they would live uh, as a unit for longer, Right? So kids would stay at home or families would be more closely, uh, would be more, uh, dent- family households would be more densely populated. Right? You would have more individuals in a house and people would get married younger, which, would mean, which means they would cohabitate younger and all of that kind of stuff. And that naturally, right, if you have two people, two houses, uh, two people get married and live in one house, that's 50% of the demand. Um, but what's happening these days is that people are living alone for longer. You know, they 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 they're not rushing into things like marriage as quickly. People are more inclined to want to get their own space, their own apartment, their own house, and live alone. And that's happening for longer and longer and longer as we have, you know, an evolving society and um and as millennials are coming through and doing different things. That also puts puts upward pressure on property prices because rather than having more people in a single household, we've got less people in a single household. Which means to house the same amount of people, we need more houses. And as we've just discussed we already have a deficit in houses and we're not approving of it at the rate that the demand is increasing. Um, so that's a really interesting um, socio, uh, yeah, so, kind of so, socio-political kind of or you know, socio-demographic probably um, impact of what's happening at the moment is just the way people are living, which is really interesting too. Mm,
1: I love that kind of a model as well because you think about, if you actually just kind of pay attention to the to the models and the frameworks and the the trends in your little view of the world and society, you know, like you can see that that trend is happening. You can see that more and more people are waiting longer to get married or to move out of house. They might move out of home and then just live with their partner in a place, not have kids. Like, and then there's this whole... As you said, the loaner effect, and you can see that. You know that as an individual, you can feel mm. that that's happening. And it's interesting, like most of those little trends that we can sense, actually apply on the big macro scale yeah. as well. And that's what influences so many of these like pricing discussions as well. So it's just, yeah. it's
0: Yeah. Same way. Yeah, yeah. Super interesting, right? So we've got all this. Um, we've got a uh, a supply and demand, uh, you know, gap, right? And that's what's driving it. Now, there's also the fact that inflation hasn't really started. We've we've been below our inflationary targets for some time. So, once inflation kicks in, and if you want to hear more about that, just check out our episode on inflation. That's going to drive up property prices more naturally, um, and people are concerned as well that oh, you know, these housing pr- house price growth isn't sustainable. It's like, well, at the moment, the housing prices have been driven up by local demand we haven't even had for the last um 18 months or something like that in australia we haven't had international migration and property prices have been booming now we also to, just to kind of layer into that for a minute because we haven't had international migration because the borders have been closed because of of coronavirus fine now what's going to happen when the borders reopen well at the moment we actually had the 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 an unemployment rate of just four and a half percent, which is the lowest unemployment rate in over 10 years. And it's only been beaten once in the entire history of recording the unemployment rate. Um, and that was just after the GFC. So there's currently a war for talent, which is driving wages and um, and also driving, it's driving wages up, right, and driving unemployment down. So once, we, once the opportunity for people to start coming here to fill those roles opens up again, that people are going to be pouring in at whatever rate the governor's going to let them in which is going which is going to again increase the pressure on the available housing stock you know there is only a certain amount of houses we're not building them quick enough I'll keep saying that we are not building houses quick enough to keep up with the demand that there are that's why we also have a, a national rental crisis there aren't enough rental properties right for all the people who want to rent not everyone can afford to buy you know I was even reading recently that um, that there's a big problem in Sydney. Um, because a lot of uh, landlords have been selling their properties in Sydney to cash out and to reposition capital or reuse capital, and all of the housing stock has been taken up by it. Well, say all, but like a, the vast majority of the housing stock has been taken up, taken up by owner occupiers, which is actually meaning there's less rental properties in Sydney, which means that the rental vacancy rates in Sydney are dropping drastically, which is driving rents up and and actually creating even more of a rental crisis in Sydney again. And so there's this there's it's it's not it's a case of rubbing Peter to pay Paul. You know we still have people still need housing. Um,
1: um, just when you say that we're not building houses quick enough, right? We get we get the framework. How does somebody address that? Like they might actually be listening to this and think like, oh, I'll go and buy, a, like I'll go and buy a house and land package then because I'll, I'm contributing to the, to the to the increase supply and in the the moving forward of the system. Mm. Like how surely that's not a good idea. Well, they probably would get some benefit in doing it now, but eventually it'll catch up and it'll.
0: Yeah, so I guess that's more of a strategy question, right? Because the houses are going to get built anyway, because there's a there's a deficit, right? Yeah. Um, at the moment, the pro- the problem is that governments aren't releasing as as much land as they need to to build as many houses as need to be built to be able to accommodate all the people who need to need to be accommodated, right? Yep. Um, So, yeah, for sure, you can go and buy a house and land package, though I think there's a very strong argument to say that that would not be a a good financial decision for you over the short to medium term. Um, Over a long enough time horizon, like 50 years, it probably wouldn't matter, but I don't know that many That many investors that want to take a 50 year um, return horizon on their investments. Um, The best returns that you're going to get are by buying in areas um, that are buying established properties in established neighborhoods because they've already gone through a recalibration phase where they were new then the community built around them and now they're the current currently the closest to the points of greatest utility and to all of the facilities and where people want to live um, as opposed to being on the outskirts which is um, by nature where land releases are going to happen further away from the action further away from where anyone is and without an established community uh, environment. so that typically there's a whole bunch of reasons that, that that usually doesn't work now also the other side of side of the coin at the moment with're building new is that we actually have a supply side in, which is actually driving um, transitionary inflation. And what that means is we're not actually getting enough building materials to build the houses, right? So you might say, oh, yeah, cool, let's go and do a house of land package." You probably can't build it. Like, there's yeah. like. And and also, if you can, the cost of building is inflated so high that yeah. that 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 any returns you're going to get are going to be delayed by a tremendous amount because you're actually going to be paying way more for the building than you would than you would normally have um, than you normally would have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I don't see that being a good uh, good strategy, particularly in the current environment. Because, yeah, I know, yeah, a, a friend who was going who was quoted two hundred thousand dollars to build a house. Within six weeks, it became two hundred and seventy-five thousand um, to build the same house in the same place. And so, when you start attacking that on, I, I really stru- I think you're going to struggle to see the growth. Once you also then take the fact that you're away from the point of greatest utility. So, a mindful of time. So let's keep let's keep trucking on. Um, there's also there's a couple of things other things I want to hit on. Record household savings in Australia. So there's over 200 billion dollars that have been saved up in Australia. Uh, household saving rates are at the highest they've been as a percentage of income in over 25 years. So so not just relative total quantum, but as a percentage of income, okay. savings rates are at the highest they've been uh, for over 25 years, which is which is awesome. Um, uh, household disposable income, so that's the saving rate. So, household disposable income is as high as it's been, except for one period in late 2020. So, in terms of like household savings and household cost of living affordability, it's the best that it's ever been. And new people are saving more. And invariably in Australia, um, all money flows into real estate. We're a real estate mad country, and that's where people want to put their money. Um, so, let me just tick through a couple of these. So, population is growing, no more land's being created. We've got the loaner effect. Um, there's a global housing supply shortage and, and in Australia's housing supply housing, housing shortage. Inflation hasn't even really kicked in yet. Um, international migration is going gonna, is gonna to crank things up again when the doors open. Um, there's record household savings. Um, there's, oh, there's also record government stimulus. So there's over $200 billion sitting in people's bank accounts waiting to be deployed um, over, the, over the coming you know, weeks, months, years right, from household savings plus there's over $200 billion of quantitative easing, plus the biggest infrastructure boom that the country's ever seen, right? And so what that is doing is that is the infrastructure boom is driving jobs and opportunity into regions where pre- previously maybe there wasn't the same opportunity, which is why people are concentrating around the capital cities. But the same problem exists in those areas too lack of housing supply all you need to do is look at the vacancy rates in some of the major major regional centers and you'll see that you'll see what's going on there unemployment rate is the lowest that it's basic basically the lowest that it's been um and there's a war for talent and then that kind of dovetails with the immigration thing as well um there so there's there's Nine there's nine major reasons why I don't see that we're in a bubble. There is just too much uh, there's too much underlying demand that is driving all of this. But here's the kicker. There's another kind of really, really really really, really big and really interesting um, interesting thing that's going on and that is institutional investment into residential. Right. So institutional investors are turning towards residential. So typically, institutional investors focused on commercial properties because of yields, um, but they uh, they're starting to expand their uh, footprint into residential. So in a st- in the US, Invitation Homes is a company um, which owns eighty thousand single family homes. Right, not apartments or anything like that. Eighty thousand single family homes across America. It's one company that owns that. Yeah. Home Partners of America own 17,000 single-family homes. We don't have anyone here in Australia doing this kind of thing, except for the fact that Blackstone are about to come and start doing exactly that. So they're expanding their footprint into Australia. They've created an $8 billion residential housing fund, and I actually want to read an excerpt out of a book called What It Takes, which which is a book about Blackstone. and I'll read an excerpt of it to give you a little context of what these guys do when they get stuck into buying residential real estate, okay? Mm-hmm. In spring 2012, we paid $100,000 for our first home in Phoenix. The same month, US house prices bottomed out. We started buying in the West and moved East city by city from Seattle to Las Vegas to Chicago and down to Orlando. Within a few months, we were buying $125 million worth of homes every week. <laughs> right, like this is bananas, right? So, so what these what these guys are doing, and they're really starting to. It's we're at the very start of a big transition into institutional investing in residential real estate they actually create funds and take on capital from from organizations like superannuation funds which have got trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of deployable capital right and then they they create an investment thesis and then they go gangbusters the australian residential market is a really 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 good uh, residential market uh, residential real estate market to be in which is why these big institutional uh, institutional investors like blackstone and when you see blackstone do something you're going to see KKR and the Car- Car- Carlisle Group and these massive, massive investment funds just going in and starting to sweep it all up. Um, so I actually think that that's actually one of the biggest, um, biggest transitionary things that's happening at the moment. Not only that, they're actually able to leverage at way higher rates, so you can't actually beat them. So the average punter, like you or me, Gabby, we can leverage maybe five times, ten times capital, um, but because these larger funds have... Uh, underlying asset value in the companies, right? They're actually able to leverage at you know between ten and fifty times on their capital, right? So, so they're able to take not only start with a higher amount of money. So they might be able to start with, I don't know, five hundred million dollars. But instead of just leveraging that ten times to five, what is that? Five billion dollars,
1: right? Yeah,
0: yeah, they could maybe leverage that fifty times, right? and 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 then go buy residential property with it and the reason they can do it is because of the underlying asset value of the companies they've gotten under the, the funds um mm-hmm. so they're at a um, they're actually the fact that so the fact they can attract the super fund money to fill up the the fill up the investment vehicles and then leverage it at way higher rates it's just phenomenal and when you've got people doing that it's like it's like wow what you know what opportunity does the average uh, property investor have? Or what is that going to do to demand? You know, it's madness. What do you think about that?
1: I just love the scale, right? Mm. I love the scale. I I love like, I love thinking about what happens in the U S in terms of investing and institutional investors. And like, it's such a larger country and there's so much more happening. Um, And then thinking about the opportunity that is here. Mm. Um, And particularly like you've been reading heaps about Blackstone and how they've, then we we'll over here to start doing that fund mm. um, which like it's going to be really fascinating to see how that plays out.
0: Yeah yeah totally and you know like we always talk about on this podcast like treating real estate investing like a business right and and to elevate to that to that level and I think more than ever this is going to be the case you know and you know I always like to the reason I like to look at what Um, large private equity groups are doing and Blackstone is one of the um, probably one of the most successful which is why I've got an interest in that business I think they're very very good at what they do is it allows you to look at um, global market trends and so there's a big so Blackstone are doing a massive expansion push into Australia for sure but there's it's actually a global residential real estate push and that's the really interesting thing that there's a there's a global trend here where uh, there, isn't, there isn't enough housing and there's not going to be enough housing and with you know with urban centres set to increase to double in uh, to double in density in the next fifty years you're going to see a, a much more, a greater concentration of wealth in in uh, real estate assets and what uh, so I've always said like what institutional investors normally do with with um, property investment is they invest for yields so which is why they've typically gone to um, commercial. But that's changing that's changing now partly because of the cost of debt uh, partly because the investment thesis is changing partly because there's greater access to capital and also partly because um of massive yield compression in the commercial sector um so it's really yeah it's changing the game in a massive in a massive way and i don't know i think there's i think there's a real op- real opportunity here uh, First, to kind of go back to the the crux of what we're talking about you know before we kind of move on and what i what what I how i think people should respond to this kind of thing but what based on everything we've talked about today what do, you, what do you think do you think we're in a bubble do you would you what do you think the risks are what do you think the things that maybe that we haven't thought about
1: i don't believe we're in a bubble largely because like i tend to lean into what are the big players doing now and uh, in regards to anything but it's like what do people who have much more resources Mm. to look into this topic and this situation what are they doing how are they tackling it are they being aggressive are they being conservative are they going here what is their thesis about this like what kind of what are they doing Mm. and taking that as like obviously not taking it purely as that but taking that as an as an inspiration to think about oh okay if they're doing this they've got their shit together so mm. they're obviously looking into anything that i could potentially be worried about and they've figured out that actually no this is the right thing to do so mm. and then you take that to do your own research and to apply it for your own situation
0: so yeah yeah totally it's also going to increase demand like when you've got big players starting to come in and trying to soak everything up that's going to increase an already constricted demand so the way that i kind of think people should be thinking about and tackling this is that every every investor should start to try and think and act like an institutional investor like there's actually a real real opportunity here if if we are going to shift you know and there are going to be massive organizations and companies that start owning tens of thousands of of you know established properties in established neighborhoods which is what um which is what invitation homes owns they're not they're not they're not just a, they're not just a developer that goes and builds them all and keeps them they go and buy up neighborhoods right so um is people should start acting acting in the same way. You know, there's potential that maybe you could create an expansive portfolio and create something with a high saleable value, which is worth greater, which is worth a multiple greater than what the actual intrinsic net tangible assets are worth. Right? So there's a way that you can kind of um, they call that a roll-up if you're talking about businesses. Right. So for example, if you wanted to, if you went and bought one dentist, right, or one dental surgery, it might be worth. I don't know, one million bucks, right? If you went and bought 10 of 10 exactly the same dental surgeries, they would be worth more than $10 million because together combined you can create operational efficiency. So they might be worth $20 million. You might actually get double what it's worth, right? So, there's a really interesting crossover here between business strategy and property investing strategy when you can kind of think about creating these asset pools, which are going to have collectively as a group a higher value, which is actually what these institutional investors do. They'll actually go and, for example, they'll create like uh, an industrial assets fund and then they'll go and buy individual industrial uh, assets, but and then group them all together, bucket them all together as one big package, and then sell resell the package at a way higher multiple because they've done all the work to, to combine all those together. And that's actually how they increase the value of the of the of the sale. Um but the kind of key things that are underpinning the way that institutional investors are attacking the current environment is they're using, they're buying for volume, they're looking for properties that are cash flow positive to cover the cost of debt, and they're using a lot of leverage, right? And they're looking at scale, right? They're thinking about scale. How do we get massive scale as fast as possible? Because then they're not in fact, I would even argue they're not even that worried about cash flow because they're going to get so much they're going to get so much growth out of the assets so as long as it covers the cost of debt and covers the operating mm-hmm. costs they're not looking for dividends they're not looking for cash flow
1: equity play
0: yeah yeah exactly so it's a it's a value play um so I think a lot I think there's a lot of lessons in that for the average for the average property investor as well
1: yeah and I mean like obviously not everyone has the funds to literally go and be, i'm going to i'm going to be an institutional investor and just go buy up all, all, whole neighborhoods um but that it's more about the concept right it's more about the mindset in approaching like this concept of the housing Mm. bubble at the moment and thinking about like if I were an institutional investor like Blackstone or someone else Mm. how would I be how would I be tackling this now would I be thinking that this is a time to retreat and really think like no I need to preserve Mm. and just like chill out because like stuff might be happening and I don't understand it or is it a time to be aggressive and really move
0: your position
1: forward Mm. Um, that's more of the that's more of the lesson rather than hey go and buy neighbourhoods.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> if you can. Yeah, yeah, yes, you can. <laughs> yeah but also, I also I think there's a I think there's a strategic angle there as well. Like like maybe, maybe as opposed to being like, oh, are we in a bubble? Should I be scared? Actually it's like flip it around because it looks like there's like a damn massive amount of opportunity in front of us. Mm-hmm. But possibly, possibly, for the right, if you've got the right uh, emotional and financial fortitude, possibly it's actually way better off for you to leverage higher and go as far and as fast as you can to mass to build out that footprint as big as you can because that's where you're going to get the greatest gains. Now, just kind of circling back to what I was saying uh, before we wrap it up, you know, I believe that all of these factors we've just talked about, those kind of 10 factors all the way through from population growing to the shift into institutional investing in residential real estate, I think that's actually going to shift the growth rate. So if we go back 40 40 years, we're at about 12. We've grown by about 12.5 times. If we use that 12.5 times and overlay it 40 years in the future, we're going to end up at about 12 million dollars median median house price. I actually think that it's actually going to accelerate beyond that. I actually think that the the inflection point is going to create a steeper growth curve, and I think we're going to have uh, an increasingly higher uh, compound annual growth rate. So once upon a time, it was you know. It's well, arguably six to six point eight, um, but I think that that's going to increase because of all of these compounding factors that are going to continuously drive faster and faster growth. And I do believe the government is going to have to try and step in to slow it down, but I don't think they're going to be able to um, because of all of these other factors. Um, yeah, so I think I, I actually think that there's a very strong likelihood that it could be fifteen million or twenty million national median house price by twenty sixty because you've got so many compounding factors in it rather than just incremental gains. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. Well, Gabby, good episode. Yeah, man. Great. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Okay, guys. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this too. We'd love your feedback and um, make sure that you like, rate, review and share this with a friend, family member or loved one and we'll see you on the next episode. Bye, guys. Bye.